Hello. Hello. Welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Jeffrey Lilly. And I'm Sarah Black. And today we've got a part one of two uh jumping back into the Salem witch trials. Finally. It's been a it's been a spell. Like, As, oh wow, Jeff. You're you, already pulling you. out the puns. <laughs> it's been a hot second, that's it's, for sure. September? At least. Right. Yeah. I think the last time we talked about the witch trials, we talked about a victim. Yeah. So uh, now we're doing a little first here. We're talking about some of the accusers. Some of the big name the Biggest? Yeah, I'd say they're probably like the biggest accusers. Yeah. Those pesky Putnams. <gasps> the Putnams. The Putnams. And actually, before we get started, if there are any Putnam descendants that happen to be listening right now, if you want to write into us, I'm going to try to dig through and see if we have any listener submissions that relate to the Putnam mm-hmm. family. Just, you know, why not? So sure. the plan is if we do have anything, we'll read it at the end of part two. So if you can ah. get get it to us as quick as possible, um, just a quick note about like, you know, how you found out, how do you feel about <laughs> it? Right. <laughs> what know. are your thoughts on your great, 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 great grandparents? Yes. I've literally met people in descendants in the Salem Witch Trials Memorial coming and they express how they want to pay tribute to the victims because mm-hmm. they do feel like a slight sense of family shame through the generations, which I just think it's beautiful, you know, that that full circle moment. Yeah. Um, so if you are, if you happen to be a Putnam descendant and you want to chime in, send us a note, hello at SalemThePodcast.com. And if you're local too, because, you know, there's plenty of you guys still around. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I get that question all the time. Like, are there any descendants still around? Oh my gosh. Yes. So many, so many. I think I saw somewhere in my research and now that I didn't actually take note of it. I'm just trying to remember. Uh, it might've been around the time that Boyer and Nissenbaum published that like a tax survey of what is now Danvers still had like 50 odd Putnam's Whoa. On the Whoa. So that's the late eighteen hundreds, so on still on the, 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 the tax rolls. Um so they were probably all likely. Yeah, I mean it was a big family. Yeah. Yeah. Thirty, sixty anyway, okay. I would I would be kind of bummed if I was like one of the outlier Putnams that had like nothing to do with the point in the fingers. <laughs> but because of the name, you kinda get, you know, strapped with yeah, that that yeah. negative connotation. You're like, no, that's my second uncle's first husband you know? Forget about it. Right? Just right? forget you're about like, oh, it. You're like, Oh, you're a Putnam and you're like, No, 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 no. I'm 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 the good Putnam. I'm actually John Putnam's uh daughter's <laughs> you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll figure it we'll out. We'll get there. We'll get there. But first, we must do a couple Patreon shoutouts and some tour time. Oh, I don't, I don't have any. I haven't. Oh, we don't have any tour time. I forgot. You're done. I mean, do you have tour time? I do have a quick tour time okay. as it pertains to this episode in particular. What do you got? So, I think this was a couple of weeks ago. It was definitely not in October. Someone on tour mentioned that their son or their son's friend or some kind of close relation to them was in a band, a heavy metal band called Abigail Williams. Like the band is just straight up called Abigail Williams. So I remember like taking note of this and then... I decided to search just in case. I think I saw a reference while we were doing while I was doing research, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I think that was what they were. I thought it was European, but it was actually founded in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, formed in two thousand four, it's an American heavy metal band. They released their fifth studio album in two thousand nineteen, so they are still relatively active. Although the band itself has changed out members over the this course of several decades. Did, and did you tell me this? No, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe it's it like came ringing up. a faint bell, but okay. No, but we have talked about other. No, we talked about another band. Well, that the was, Crown and Shield band. No, we talked about them as well. Okay. But then we also talked about recently for was it Elizabeth Howe's episode? No, Wilmot Red. It was Wilmot Red. There's yes, a, okay. There's okay. a band. Okay. Formed in Marblehead, right, right. Named Wilmot Red. Thank you. I'm sitting here being like, 
like deja I've, vu. I'm like a band <laughs> named. I'm like this sounds familiar. Okay, there we yeah. go. Yeah. So there is. So there's a band named Wilmot Red, and then we also have a band <laughs> named after freaking Abigail Williams. They should. They should have like a like uh, a. <laughs> <laughs> a sound off a, a battle of the bands Ooh, battle of the bands <laughs> oh my goodness but yeah i did come across some references to like their inspiration behind the name and they said that they're inspired by arthur miller's the crucible i'm gonna read a quote by one of their bassists and okay. just like just so like you have a okay. sense of like why they chose that name because i just found it interesting also keep in mind they were founded in 2004 sure the accuser is always relevant in society. In America, there were the witch trials, the Red Scare, and now terrorism. Everyone is always quick to point a finger. We do it out of fear, prejudice, and because of things we just don't understand. So, the accuser will always be present in society. Abigail Williams really stuck out to us, not only due to the above mentioned, but also because it possessed that iconic quality while still sounding very American. <laughs> we want people to know where we are from and that even though it may not be cool, trendy, we are proud of our American culture. I just like, I just found it interesting that they chose an accuser. But interesting as they, concept. Yeah. I'm not against it. But then I also thought about how like, you always choose a villain. Yeah. Whenever yeah. you are asked anything, yeah. <laughs> like, who's your favorite witch or wizard? You go with Voldemort. Like, no. that kind of shit. So, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. To each his own. Sure. But yeah, we have a band out there called Abigail Williams, and I'm pretty sure they are still, they're still performing. We'll have to check them out. Some quick Patreon shout outs. Here we go. What do we got first? A big thank you to Katie Sincata. Thank you, Katie. Appreciate you. Coming up after that, Lauren Brian. Thank you, Lauren. Brain. Brian. Brian, dude. This weird wise do weird things. That's true, but I don't think that's I don't think that's how you spell brain. I be okay. Thank you, Lauren Brian. <laughs> thank you. And thank you to Megan McCalick. Thank you, Megan. Kind of just rolls off the tongue. Nice and easy. And last for this week, we have Tawny. Oh, thank you, Tawny. Appreciate all of you. Thank you guys for being uh, wonderful patrons and supporting Sail in the Podcast. But now... On to the Putnams. Sort of. Sort of? Well, with like most of our episodes, uh, we're going to give you like a lead up to the people, right? So we talk, uh, if you've you know checked out any of our other episodes, uh, a bit of their history, a bit of where they come from, how they were involved in the community, and then talk about the witch tri- about the trials and their involvement in that. So the trials and their involvement is going to be next episode. But this one is just going to be the lead up, mostly because it is stupidly complicated. And it's essential to yes. understanding why the witch trials I think really started in the first place. Yeah. Like I always, I always like to compare it to a big Jenga and like all these different factors. If you were to pull one of them out, we always talk about like the governor, if he would have shown up a couple months earlier, maybe it wouldn't have proceeded the way it did. Again, the Putnams are a big factor in this. If they weren't so pesky, we may not have seen this blow out of proportion. If Tom's we... dad hasn't gotten remarried. <laughs> I'm just saying. Wait, which Tom? Tom Jr. or Tom Sr.? Tom Sr. Ah, okay. It's going to get real complicated, but we're going to help us through it because <laughs> I think it's it's essential for us to understand as uh-huh. well as the listeners. Yeah. So I, I don't know about you, but it definitely helped me gain some insight into the uh, the social issues that were interworking themselves at the beginning of the entire trials. Absolutely. So we're going to focus on like the core group of Putnams that are the major accusers and talk about their family history. Obviously, like you said, how they're involved in the trials directly. Also, we'll be talking about Mercy Lewis, yes, who was living in the household as a servant during that time. Collectively, the family filed about a hundred accusations or so. Uh, so, like we said, they're the the big bads. They really lead the forefront of the individuals accusing, and and Thomas is involved in a lot of the. Uh, I think we talked about this with um, Reverend Burroughs. 
And probably a bit of Rebecca Nurse's episode, too. Yeah, where we find his signature on dozens and dozens of documents, where we find his quote-unquote testimony on dozens of documents, and it is shockingly similar in all of his his things. He's he's. It seems though he's found a formula, and he just rinses and repeats. And uh, yeah, he was one of the transcribers, the yeah. the clerks of the court during the trials, and you see his name, like you said, on those documents. He's there. He's right there uh-huh. with the magistrates in the courtroom with the afflicted girls every step of the way. So Thomas, Thomas Putnam, I feel like he's like the big central bad. Junior. Junior, sorry, Junior. (laughs) Thomas Putnam Jr. So he was born in 1652, making him around 40 at the time of the trials. So he was actually part of the third generation of Putnams in Salem Village. Mm -hmm. So over the course of those three generations, they had become a wealthy powerful family he was i'd say definitely born into privilege as much privilege as you could be born into in mid 17th century new england uh him and anne carr will be married in 1678 she was also raised in salem village 10 years his junior she was 16 he was 26 which was young for the time i think i was i was looking in about 22 was sort of the the average. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, when I was first looking at their ages, I th- I saw some other sources that put her younger, like oh. 14. No. And I was like, oh, my God. But, yes, yeah, definitely still young for the yeah. time. Yeah, like unusually young. But Yeah, yeah. They went on to have 12 children. Two of them died young. And I feel like most of the time we only talk about Ann Putnam Jr., Right? Yes. That's the only person we really, the only child of theirs that we really hone in on. But she was the oldest, um, born 1679. So that's the core group of Putnams tied to the trials. But to understand their involvement in those trials, again, we got to go way back. Way back. Way back. So let's, let's trace Thomas Putnam's ancestry just a little bit. Well, obviously, if he's Thomas Putnam Jr., his father is Thomas Putnam Sr. Oh, magic. (laughs) That's like the easiest part of it all. Right? (laughs) But also the most confusing. Yeah, because you keep, because it's not, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they don't always specify in the documents. No. You just always have to, you have to understand like who's, who's where. Thankfully, his father does die before the trials, so we can definitely rule him out of any of those. Mm-hmm. But um, when we look at a lot of like uh, appointmentships and taxes and land ownerships, you're like Thomas Putnam, Thomas Putnam. Tom. Yep. And you're like, wait, hold on. And then you have to sort of like, just like differentiate by year. You're like, okay, well, that can't be Thomas Putnam Jr., because the age or the timeline just doesn't match up. Right. And both of them were very active, very um, involved in the community. Yeah. So before Thomas Putnam Sr., we had Lieutenant John Putnam, one of the earliest residents of Salem Village. He had emigrated from England to the colonies around 1630. I've seen like multiple claims, 1634 all the way to the 1640s. Yeah, I saw about 1634. Yeah, somewhere around there, late 1630s, if not early 1640s. I've also seen him as referenced as one of the founders of Salem Village, but... Again, I've seen multiple sources where he gets there. By the time he gets there, there are quite a few people already mm-hmm. living in the area that we know as Salem Village. Yeah, so uh, 1634 is like the time right in the heart of like the great Puritan migration. Mm-hmm. So that's also one of the reasons it's a little hard to track Yeah, is because you just have tons and tons of Puritans coming over here like every year. And so he's lumped in with, with a lot of them. So he had come over with his second wife, I believe, and uh, several children, including Thomas Putnam Sr. And uh, I think several of them were of adult age. So they were, they already had like, you know, working hands for the farm. They were farmers and agriculture was going to be their trade here in Salem Village. That's probably an important thing to touch on 
real quick. So Salem Village and agriculture. Yes. Uh, it's the so, whole reason why it's there. <laughs> exactly. So for those of you who are have been paying attention and, and know, the city of Salem today is what was Salem Town. What is now modern-day Danvers was Salem Village. Even if you come to Salem today, obviously it's heavily built up, industrialized, and these sorts of things. But you got to remember, we had the South River coming all the way down Front Street and then all the way down Canal Street. And then you have the North River, which is going all the way down Bridge Street, all the way basically to the side of the hangings. The common has five ponds in it. <laughs> As we noted last <laughs> week. Um, it's a big fishing area. That's Nomkeg, the, the, the place of good fish. That's why Roger Conant settled here. He was a fisherman. Uh, and that's as a port city that, that's heavily involved in the community here. Uh, we don't have fertile land. Not a lot of it. It's just not good for it. Yeah. So it's great for harbor and trade, but it's not great for farming. And that's why Salem Village is sort of established as these people need prominent farmland. Uh, many of them are yeoman farmers. Uh, they've come over here looking to be farmers. And Salem Town doesn't offer that resource. So we're going to move, and it's weird, <laughs> we're going to move five miles inland. Dude, five miles? I, like, okay. <laughs> it's so funny because I come from Michigan. I come from the Midwest. We have the grid system. Five miles takes five minutes, <laughs> maybe three, three and a half if you're lucky. Careful there, Ledford. Um, <laughs> um, but out here, five minutes still in 2023. Five minutes five on miles. the North Shore. Oh, oh. Or sorry, five miles on the North Shore can take you at least a half hour. <laughs> and that is so stupid. It sucks. It is. The traffic out here is so horrible because we are literally driving on the same roads that the Putnams were driving on to get to church every Sunday. Carriaging on? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's ridiculous. But that's important because that length is is one of the driving factors in the divide of Salem Village and Salem Town. And uh, one of the things that I, I talk about just a little bit on tour, because you, you can't possibly get into this, right? I'm like, you got to go to church every Sunday, right? Every that, Sunday. That's, that's fine in, in September. In January, that could be a death sentence. Yep. You're like, oh, great. Look, there's three feet of snow outside. Got to get to church in Salem Town. These people, some people were on foot. Yeah. Did you clock it? Because I clocked it. No. Uh, <laughs> on foot? No. Oh. <laughs> I mean, yes. Well, I mean, not not by my feet, but I did on the maps. Okay. What, what do we got? Um, so, from, so I did it from the Israel Putnam Homestead, which okay. we'll mention in a bit here. And from there to Rockefeller's, which house? was the first meeting house, it was just under like seven miles like six and a half miles it's two hours two hours or so if you're walking okay so if you've got a carriage and you've got a horse you're you should be okay but still there and back that's a good portion of your day yeah well it's the sabbath so you're not working yeah but, but like that's your only day not to work and you gotta spend it going to this church that's what they did that's yes i know that's why they hated life so much. and that's why they killed all these innocent people and also we got to remember that the putnams had 12 kids yeah no i thought about that too oh I my was god like, can you imagine trying to wrangle up all these kids and having to drag kids. them to church and you, no wonder they went crazy you have a 12 year old a 10 year old an 8 year old a 6 year old a 4 year old a 1 year old and you're pregnant and you're like let's go walk 7 miles in january Yep. Yeah, I get it. They're like, we want a church in Salem Village. Yeah, yeah. So the Putnam family, the, that core Putnam family, Thomas Putnam and Anne and all their children, they lived even further than the Israel Putnam house. So the Israel Putnam house, that one still stands. You can yeah. go visit it. Um, named for a guy that comes generations later, a Revolutionary War era guy. But where these Putnams lived that house no longer stands. It's a little bit further to the west. So, so they lived on the far west southern side of what is now Danvers, what was then Salem Village. So, so they lived. Took them, it was 7.1 miles. 7.1 miles. I can't, like, ew. 
Why would you decide <laughs> to live? But that's why they that's why they pushed so hard yeah. to get their own church. So and, so hold on, hold on. They kept I kept seeing that they lived on Hawthorne Hill. Yeah. Okay. I don't know this, but I tried to figure out where Hawthorne Hill is. And the thing that keeps popping up is a medical clinic called Hawthorne Hill. Uh-huh. And it seems to be, and I, I sort of got like geographically, it seems correct, but I've I'll tell you, maybe we can both look at it later. I think that's where Danvers State Hospital. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that hill is the hill. Okay. So we're so sure- Danvers State Hospital was built on Putnam land. Okay. Okay. Or I, I think didn't know that which for sure. was also owned before it was ever owned by the Putnams. I also think it was owned by Hathorne, William Hathorne, who was the father of Magistrate John Hathorne yes. from the trials. He was a land speculator of sorts, brought up some of the first tracks of Danvers and started selling them off. And I'm pretty sure they moved on to Hawthorne or Hathorne land. So, yeah, if like that. And now, is there a new hospital there? No, now no, it's apartments. It's, it's apartments. Oh, yeah, they converted to apartments. Yeah, yeah. So those apartments. Which wow. were once... Uh, mental institution talk about some layered history there and and people come on fun fun fact about danvers state do you know this so a we need to do like a whole episode on danvers state like let's just let's just do it but that is the inspiration for arkham asylum in batman yes i think i did know that okay okay yeah because arkham asylum batman is based off of arkham in lovecraft novels i feel like danvers state has been used as inspiration for like a lot of places yeah it was yeah. one but because lovecraft used it so lovecraft was inspired by danvers state and then the batman arkham was inspired by the lovecraft arkham oh that's kind of cool so it's like a chain yeah yeah that's neat fun <laughs> fact and that is where the putnams and live. that's where the putnams <laughs> live oh my gosh that's cool <laughs> okay i'm glad that like you could confirm that because i kept looking and i was like i'm pretty sure that this is right yeah i spent some time on the map as well and okay. i was just like looking over like the neighborhood area i was like there's got to be something like what's named for them and some of the old like old maple road is still they lived there the one of the original putnam farms was on maple road i'm pretty sure it's like a junction where the expressway meets but there is an old maple road there where their home once stood it's now just a residential area but there is a putnam lane okay very close to it i also saw a neighborhood that's called putnamville there's a putnamville reservoir like amityville (laughs) i guess (laughs) well i was wondering i was like i'm so surprised that we don't have we have a peabody you know and like i know peabody's named for yeah. someone and then um danvers i also saw it during the research i didn't write it down i should have but it was like related to the 1800s um osborne danvers yes yeah. there we go so i figured i was like there's got i'm so surprised that we don't have as prominent as this family was at one time i'm surprised shameful shame will do a well did is that what it is is that really did it take them down that much well i think i think the, the divorced father, I think, has a lot to do with that. Or sorry, 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 the, the remarried father. the And you're referring to Thomas Putnam Sr.? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're going to have to expand on that some some good amount here because I, I have no idea. I have... I have five pages of research, <laughs> research, a lot of sake in me, and I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. So let's... Uh, so that's, that's the importance of Salem Town. Yes. Sorry. Salem Village. Um, So John Putnam. John Putnam's like the first Putnam to get here. And I have seen him credited as like being one of the founders of Salem Village. He wasn't, but he was some one of the early residents. Yeah. Now, remember, Salem Town was established in 1626. It was in 1632 that John Endicott will plant his uh, little 300-acre... Lies. Lies. What? Is that lies? No, I just don't believe it. Why? You saw it. The tree? That's not a 300-year-old tree. It's not a 300, 400-year-old tree. 
Okay, Jeffrey, calm down. That's not what. Calm down. Let me finish my sentence. Okay, sorry. No, John and so John Endicott, John, first governor of Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. He is like, I guess you could say, credited as the first guy to like claim a track of land in what is now modern day Danvers, and it is a three hundred acre orchard farm. Okay, one of the trees you can still see today. I don't yeah. believe it. It's the oldest fruit tree in America, Jeffrey. I, just, I think it's shenanigans and lies. It's I, doesn't it have a Wikipedia page? I'll link it in the show oh, notes. We've been there. I know. We we saw look, look we the saw tree. the oldest fruit tree in America. It's like a forty year old tree at best. No, it's not. I'm sorry. I know. I know. You can see one of one of John Endicott's trees still remains in Danvers. Just Google it. It's behind a parking lot, behind a fence. It's like by a hospital or yeah, something. Yeah. But yeah, you can go see it. It's fenced off. And following John, you know, you had some other guys move in. A Samuel Shelton or Skelton, which I feel like I met a descendant of theirs this year. Uh, some other names, John Humphrey, Emmanuel Downing, and William Hathorne. As I said, father of Magistrate John Hathorne. Those were some of the initial people that kind of moved into the area. And it's in 1638. They are officially allowed to establish this Salem village. And it's, I'd say, 1640s or so, like we said, that John Putnam moves in. So they they quickly rose to be top dogs, like through several generations, right? Gained a lot of wealth, a lot of power, a lot of influence in the community. And back then, the more hands you had, like... You had more help on the farm. Yep. At the same time, though, you could make alliances. You could make those marriage connections. So they amassed a good amount of land, a good amount of power. There's like dozens of them. It's it's a lot. Yeah. I think one of them had like 15 kids at one point. They're fertile. <laughs> <laughs> Salem Town may not have been fertile, but the Putnams were. <laughs> That's why they moved to Salem Village, because it was also <laughs> fertile land. Anyway, uh, so they're in Salem Village. They're building land. They're land prospecting. They've got farms, and they're, they're making good money and all these things. But again, getting back to the heart of it is this uh, idea of separation from Salem Town. It's, as the years go on, it's just grading on the people in the community, and they want... Uh, a separate community. And another thing we mentioned church, but what we also didn't mention is town watch had a big part in it. So you had to stand guard at the gates because again, conflict with the indigenous peoples and these sorts of mm -hmm. things. And so if you lived in Salem village, you were still conscripted to be part of the town from the militia uh, <laughs> uh, to stand guard. So if you were a Putnam, living on your farm seven miles away, when your number came up to stand guard. You had to travel all the way in. Which also meant leaving your homestead unguarded. So there was no one out there to guard your homestead while you're trekking all the way back here to guard someone else's homestead. And you're like, this is BS. We need our own independent system of government. And they were told they could go stick it at first. Yeah, they started petitioning Salem Town in the 1660s. So we're talking three decades before the Salem Witch Trials even kick off. Yeah, uh, Those were denied. Those initial requests were denied. Only furthering that wedge that was growing between mm -hmm. some of the families in town. So it seemed to be like these two main factions that developed. Uh, the Putnams, when Salem Village becomes a town, or sorry, when Salem Village gets their autonomy from Salem. Autonomy is in, in big air quotes on that one. Right, in some respects, but yeah. they are officially, quote unquote, independent from Salem Town. They are allowed to establish a committee, like a, a, a neighborhood, a, a village committee that oversees yeah. village affairs. Thomas Putnam Jr. is one of those individuals on the committee. And 
you can see like the the exchanges of power back and forth, back and forth. And one of the families that they really butted heads with was the Porter family. Damn, Porters. It is 1672 that we have an official, quote-unquote, official Salem village. Um, and you said that that committee, so they, so what Salem Town allows them to do uh, is pick five guys, like, you know, the burgers, uh, to kind of be in charge and to make some decisions. And I'm putting big air quotes here. No one can see me. Uh, but that just keeps getting trampled, like, on multiple occasions by Salem Town. They're like, yeah, sure, you guys can have your, but you can't do that. But you can't do, oh, well, you're not actually in charge, which then leads to the discussions and disagreements that are going to happen over the next 15, 20 years. We should also talk about, like, why Salem Village and Salem Town aren't getting along. Like, it's, like, why is Salem Village trying to become independent from Salem Town, and why are they feuding in the first place? So as we said, Salem Village was where they established it. It was five miles away from Salem Town. So that's a, a bit away from this port center. There was quite a distinction between the Putnams, who were living on the western side of this already out there, yep. outskirts town, and those living on the eastern side of town on the border of Salem Town, and they're able to kind of engage in say that that Salem town community still. For example, the Porter family, who I always like to, I imagine the Porters and the Putnams. I always, I never remember the names Atfield from Field McCoys. Say it again. Atfield McCoys. Yes, from Romeo and Juliet. No, 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 no. That's um. I think you got it right. No, I hunt. No, no, that is that's. Is oh. that Hamlet? Oh, people are screaming at us right now. Oh, why don't I know my Shakespeare? Cap Capulet. Oh, and Montague. Yes, there we go. There Thank we you. go. <laughs> yes. I had to so dig when in I, my brain for that one. Whenever I think about the Putnams and the Porters, I envision I envision this. I can't help it. I God, I I wonder if there's like a love story embedded in there somewhere in the history. Like, was there something happening? Were there lines crossed? Are you saying yes? Yes, it happened. Oh my God, Jeffrey, I can't wait to tell. We, <laughs> okay, cool. I'm excited. I'm ready for this. Well, sort of. I mean, it's. Okay, okay. So, well, so because you have this distinction geographically, western side of Salem Village versus the eastern side, those eastern side families have, again, more access to the port city. They have better relationships with the mer merchant families, and they have financial interests in Salem town itself they were able to diversify their income and unfortunately the Putnams and those families more on the western side if they weren't they weren't necessarily on board with that not only is it difficult for them geographically because of where they're located but also the Putnams they were your traditional Puritans like in every sense of the word uh, they viewed those rich, prosperous merchants in Salem Town as uh, bathing in their own opulence, maybe a little bit uh, flamboyant, a little bit too individualistic for their taste. Mm -hmm. So there were these not, on, not only financial divides happening, but also social class divides developing as well. So you've got the, the, the two village salem village salem town pitted against each other almost with that comes uh there's also religious disagreements which then because they're they're puritans so they're religious extremists um they're the bad guys here by the way which we should all keep in the back of our minds that uh these these are the bad guys in the in the story in every story puritans are bad um they got a little out of hand. Yeah, got a, <laughs> I mean, they started out of hand. Yeah, you're right. They they left England because they were like, you're separatists and traitors, and you tried to blow up Parliament. And they're like, oh, sorry, bye. <laughs> and you're like, mm, okay. Anyway, I'm getting off track. Uh, so one thing that I find hilarious about this whole Putnam 
Salem Village situation is they are all on board pretty much as, as a community with establishing their own church. Uh, sorry, church being place of worship, not church being body of, which are two separate things within the Puritan community. Uh, they already have their own church there. Anyway, I'm not going to get too much into it. No, explain that. Okay, so there's the physical place of worship. No, no, I know, but where are they going? You said they already have that. They already have their own church body. So the community itself within Salem Village is part of the church. So they're not looking to form a different church. They're looking to form a different meeting house where the church can meet. They're not looking to split religiously. They're just looking for a physical location. Gotcha. Yeah. So they're not trying to... Oh, so you're. that's literally just a, a verbiage, like like semantics. Like yeah, they're not trying... Yeah, it's very important within the construct of the Puritan discussion. To them, the church is not the physical place, okay. but the members of the community. Okay. That's interesting. See, yeah. I wouldn't have known that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So when you're... Okay. And, and, and we use interchangeably. Yeah, we do. So it's difficult to splice in both our understanding and their understanding and have conversations about it without getting confused. Right. So let's go with our understanding. Yeah. So they're <laughs> looking to establish a physical... A physical meeting house because five to seven miles is just a little bit too they're, far. They're getting damn sick of it. Yes. Um, but like I said, they're all on board with the establishment of the physical place, but they are not all on board with either what's going to be preached or who's going to do the preaching. Well, that and again, along those financial lines and those factions that have developed those that are more for Salem town and against again, you see them divided mm -hmm. on this issue of becoming an independent village from the greater town yeah so and you'll see those same divides carry into the church and the people who are like you said preaching in that church do we want to want to cover some of them oh yeah so we always <laughs> talk about mr samuel paris but he was number four, four. yeah and i was looking somewhere and uh, i saw something i think by emerson baker it said that the average uh, minister in the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, at this point in time was about 22 years. Was the amount of time that a single person would lead. Oh, I thought you meant like 22 years old. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I was like, dang it, those are some young <laughs> No, they would, they would hold ministers. the position on average about two decades. In their in that one spot. In that one spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. these guys did not last that long. They went through four <laughs> and 16 years. <laughs> and, and we're, again, already talking about a community that is disenfranchised with the social norm and with the evolvement, evolution of Salem uh, Town. And they're like, screw this, one other thing. And they're like, who are we going to get to preach? And they're like, this guy. Like, no, we don't like that guy. This guy. No, we don't like that also, guy. Also, can we just do a quick reminder that we're in the 1600s. Like, they're just a staff. They are third, second, second generation, second and third generation of living in this place. Like, yeah. half of them died when they first got here. It's just like, it, well, it is. Like, like a third of them died. The other third stayed, and the other third left. Yes. The conditions, high-stress environment, very cold winters, a lot of anxiety, a lot of anger. A lot of death. A lot of death, a lot of feuding, a lot of spitefulness. So the, the task of hiring a minister and church services, like those are a hot topic. That minister has a lot of sway in the community. Until the community decides not to pay them or give them firewood. And they're like, screw you guys. I'm going home. Yeah. All three before, I guess, Samuel Paris as well, you could consider as well. He, <laughs> he, they all left because of like conflict, because mm -hmm. of the infighting yeah. with Salem villagers. Uh, do you want to mention them all? Sure thing. We've got uh, first up, Mr. Reverend James Bailey. 1672. So he's the first. Uh, and he will go until? 79. 1679, when a Mr. George Burroughs arrives. Ooh, we've heard him before. Go check out George's episode. I think <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah, yeah. 
And um, so he will stay in off, stay in office. He will preach until. So it looks like about 83, 84. Uh, there's at some point they stop paying him. And of course, I think we got more into this in his episode, but this has to do with the halfway covenant. Uh, a lot of it, which is uh, the best way to describe that halfway, you're meeting halfway. It's a compromise. Uh, so it's like an update, updated church doctrine. And Salem town was already sort of in practice of the updated church doctrine. And Salem village was like, Whoa, I don't think so. Again, Salem village is a little bit more traditional in their religious practices and their religious beliefs. The halfway covenant basically allowed you to become a full church member, be recognized as a full church saved a uh, saint among men without having to meet all the initial requirements. So I believe one of the main requirements was publicly confessing your sins and the halfway covenant eliminated this from those requirements. And the thing, as you were saying, they want to establish a separate church, but not a separate church body. If you were a full church member at Salem town church, uh-huh. you could attend Salem Village Church as a full church member, even though they were not adhering to the halfway covenant. So they did not accept you. I mean, it's crazy because it's literally a difference of miles. It's a difference of, <laughs> it's religious extremism. Again, you're right. Yeah. That's what it all comes down to. Uh, but one thing uh, that I always sort of just roll my eyes at with the Puritans is um, without getting too much into it. There is a, when you are born, I don't know who decides or how it's decided, you are either going to heaven or you're not. Predestination. It's already determined. You don't know that. No one knows that. But everyone has to do the big checklist of things. Just in case. Just in case. Yeah. But not everyone does the big checklist. Sometimes you do all the things. Rebecca Nurse, great example, had done all of the things. But if she's on the bad list, she's on the naughty list. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to... uh, So we we again have these ideas where the Puritans are looking at Salem... uh, The the residents of Salem Village are looking at the residents of Salem Town and being like, but they're not even doing all the requirements. We are. How dare they come into our church... Without the checked box, you know. You, and how dare they boast around town as full church members when they didn't partake in all the requirements? I forgot they have a specific name, but yeah. There's baptism to saving faith, to communion, to all these different things that they have to do. And some of them aren't doing them. And Salem Village is like, ah. Uh. And then you get a minister in like Burroughs who's like, hey, we got we got some cool new things happening over in Salem Town. Maybe we maybe we should uh maybe we should jive with that. And they're like, maybe you can get the fuck out of here. <laughs> they're like, oh, you want firewood? I'm sorry. Maybe not. That sums it up, right? I feel I feel like that pretty that sums it up pretty good. <laughs> How long was Burroughs in for? Uh 80 to 84, 83. And then he goes up to Maine. Yeah. We'll talk about him later. He comes back in again. <laughs> and <laughs> Actually, then? he comes back in several times. And then Deodat Lawson. Deodat Lawson. Which I love the name. It is a very nice name. He comes up. He comes up. I feel like he's sprinkled throughout the trials yeah. as like one of those side characters. He would be like one of those like side extras if this was turned into a feature film. <laughs> like, like like maybe the actor who you recognize, but you're not quite you're sure. You're like, yeah, but he's everywhere. Yeah. He's in everything. Yeah. And finally, Samuel Paris. Oh. Again, all of them left because of issues with either pay. Uh, the building of the parsonage was a problem in itself, mm-hmm. whether they wanted to fund the creation of a parsonage. Um, this is where the minister would live with his family and who was going to pay for it, who was going to own it, wh- how long were they going to live there. So there were arguments over money. Money was, of course, a big thing. Um, minister salary. So in another where this comes into play is we mentioned those five guys uh, who are given some authority by Salem Town, but Salem Village isn't responsible for their own taxes uh, effectively. 
And so now you're looking to add extra taxes for this church. And they're all like, we want the church. And they're like, okay, well, you guys got to cough up some money in the form of these taxes. And they're like, well, we don't want to do that. Uh, There's a split between people who do and people who don't. Some of that falls on social lines. Some of that falls on Putnam lines. Some of that falls along uh, wealth lines. And we have a disagreement on not only uh, where the land is coming from, who owns the land, uh, and this gets into some heavy issues with Reverend Paris, because to his understanding, uh, when he comes on board, he's like, no, I need this as a stipulation that the land is mine. And they're like, sure, sure, sure. And then a couple years later, they're like, well, we got a new. So, by the way, these five guys aren't the same five guys. No, they change. They change. They get elected. They yeah. get swapped out. So we get a new five guys. And they're like, yeah, well, we don't like what the last five guys did. So the land isn't actually yours. And um, now I want a burger. <laughs> and they're like, well, sorry. And he's like, well, I don't like that. And they're like, well, either you like it or you guess what? You don't get firewood. Again, we talk about the le- the lead up to the trials. That's a big reason why I think the trials kicked off. Things, tensions were already brewing for years, decades at this point. But we see this church tension really start developing in the three or so years leading up to 1692. Which is when Reverend Paris has the ministership. He comes in with a little heavy hand. They like what he has to say. Uh, But then again, we have those people who don't quite like what he has to say. And coincidentally, those people are the people living a little closer to Salem Town and not the Putnams. And those people get put in charge of the five guy little uh, committee. So in 91, we get a new five guys. (laughs) <laughs> I love this. I'm just going to keep calling it five guys. We get a new five guys and they're like, well, we don't think that we're changing the game. So again, October 1991, guys. Um, October when? 1991. Try again. One. October Oh my one. God. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. 1691. There you go. There you go. <laughs> 1691. The Porter faction took control of that village committee and... Away from the Putnams, they voted against a tax levy that would have raised revenue for Reverend Paris's salary. And, of course, this angered the Putnams. This angered all their, their friends and the Reverend himself. Mm-hmm. He was even quoted as preaching about this in some of his sermons. January time frame. Yeah, leading up to... The He's trials. getting a little heavy-handed behind the pulpit there. Yep. He would preach about a conspiracy against the church amongst them being hatched in the village. So let's back up and talk a little bit about the Putnams in particular. Do you want to spill the beans on what I think's going on? Sure. <laughs> so uh, the thing is, is that Thomas Putnam Jr.'s father, Thomas Putnam Sr., dies. Oh my God, yes, I totally thought this had a thing too. I was like, oh, I wonder if we have different interpretations. I just think that it probably made him, I think Thomas Putnam was a privileged little boy who grew up in a wealthy family and he did not get inheritance when his father died or his uh, father-in-law died. And he was the eldest son in the family. So, like, that's weird in itself. Mm-hmm. Probably had some bad relations with his father. But, you know, he that meant something back then. So that would have passed the torch of the patriarchy, like, of his family. Like, he is now the patriarch of his family. He is the king of his family. However, he does not get the inheritance that you would expect him to get. Not only that, but his brother, Mary, step brother, half brother, half brother. Yeah. Oh, so what happens is, uh, Thomas, Thomas Putnam Jr.'s, sorry, I said father, mother dies. His father remarries. They have one child, Joseph Putnam. When, He's the one that gets all the money. When Thomas Putnam Sr. dies. The vast majority of like an 800 acre estate goes to Joseph Putnam. I didn't know he was a half brother. Yeah. Ah. He's the youngest. He's he's 16. So he can't even come into his inheritance. And he just got the entire Putnam 
estate. And so you go, I think uh, Tom Jr. has got several kids at this point, has, you know, that he works, he's a farmer. He's not like sitting on his haunches. Like no. he's got some privilege, but he's not like, you know, sitting no, in his castle. No, and he's definitely, he's, he's in the family business. He's yeah. working. And yeah. then the whole family business gets ripped out from under him. And he's got 12, well, ends up having 12 kids. Um, or well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just double checking. And now all of a sudden, imagine it, it's not, he's fired from the job. He's like, sorry, you're not going to get in. And now his. And something that he's been counting on since his, it's his birthright yeah. in, in the Puritan world in this time I, period. I, I, are you kidding? In every time period since the creation of. Ever. Ever. <laughs> it's his birthright. I mean. Wow. I did not know this. Yeah. And then. Joseph Putnam marries a porter, Elizabeth Porter. So I did know that. So he yeah. marries into like the big. Ra- so this is what you meant by yeah. the, <laughs> the Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. It was Daughter right of in, Israel Porter. It was right in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow! So, wow. And correct me if I'm wrong. These are the good Putnams. These are the ones that are signing in defense of like Rebecca Nurse. Yeah, because these are the ones that are on that side yeah, of things. Yeah, so it's a it's along that half brother line. Ooh, he t- he takes the family business, and Thomas Putnam is left like when he'd gotten married. Obviously, you know you, you'll get here's some land, here's a house, right? That's how things worked, right? And they they all lived in sort of the same area, uh. So he had his own land, but the hundreds of acres that was his family land is now gone to his his half-brother and they try and go and fight it in court and the court's like no sorry and then when his stepmother dies she has she's had control of a portion of the uh, Putnam land as well and she left that to her daughters and, and her son and they go in and argue that like she can't divvy up Putnam land what right does she have and they're like well it was in the will they try and challenge the will and uh, they're left out in the cold both times. Wow. And so Thomas Putnam's gone from a life of, call it what you will, to having that all ripped from him, having a much smaller homestead, all his kids. In, and this is all in like the late 1680s, early 1690s. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a bitter guy. He's a, he's a, he's boiling. He's I, a brewing. I'd be, I'd be pissed off too. Yeah. I'd, I'd be pissed off too. And I think sort of regardless of, you got, he's got all these kids and you're like 800 acres divided, you know, and then what are you going to do with all your kids? You're like, I, this is As how. you say you have this many. Yeah. Yeah. How, how dare your father, like you should provide for your grandkids and here you, you've left them all. And Thomas Putnam's one of a dozen kids himself. It's crazy. He left so much to the new child. Yep. The youngest. The youngest, not even of age yet. Yeah. So, again, Jenga. We'll, <laughs> we should make a Jenga. <laughs> and we'll put him on one of the little the little pieces because that's definitely a moment right there. If that didn't happen. If, if Thomas Putnam either had left his land to the eldest child, as he should have done, as is the, the state of affairs. As is tradition. I... <sighs> The trials may have never happened. I'd, I'd heavily lean towards that argument, yeah. Or maybe not to the scope that they did. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Damn you, Joseph Putnam. <laughs> Don't blame man Joseph. Well, I mean, he, he took it, took all the land, married a porter, and <laughs> <let> fuck off. He's <laughs> 16. I mean, that's fair. I was gonna blame, blame it on the father, dude. I thought you were... Damn it, Thomas Putnam Sr. There we go. Yeah, we took it all the blame off Anne, and we're putting it on her. <laughs> to be fair, and like I, I, I've, I've come around to Anne a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's like young. She's freaking young. She's like in her early thirties. And we have like insults on ornaments of her. Like it's, it's kind of wild how her reputation. Like we all know Anne Putnam Jr. Anne Putnam Senior too. To be oh, fair. Oh, oh, Junior's. So, so Junior, and we'll get into this more next week. Junior's 13. Right, right. But 
she's been living in this household. So at the age of like between seven and 12, she said her whole world turned up. She was. Oh yeah. She's probably, yeah. It's not a good situation. And, and, and her home the- life has become, I mean, dad, I don't, I don't know what the nature of Thomas Putnam jr. Was, but call him even an amicable guy. He now probably turns into a bitter guy. Might what? be complaining a bit. She probably overhears a lot. It's a small homestead. Probably gets more the, abusive than... I was going to say the anger that probably seeped out. And of course, that's going to trickle down into the family dynamic. Yeah. And especially at her age. Uh-huh. And we can... I I think that's a pretty reasonable correlation to make. Again. <laughs> wow. Thanks, uh, Thomas Putnam Sr. Yeah. Yeah. Way to... Get remarried and leave all your wealth to your youngest. And that's like, that's so like, I feel like that happened. Like, as I'm saying that out loud, that's like a classic trope tale of like millionaire people, right? Oh, so, you see it on like a Hallmark or yeah, ABC yeah. family. A little more censored, less death. But <laughs> yeah. Yep. So anyway... Where does that, uh... Do we want to leave it here? Where does that leave us? I mean, I think we're getting pretty close to having to to talk about accusations. Got some good background on the Putnams. We've got some major things happening in Thomas Putnam's life in the years leading up to 1692. His father dies. That inheritance shift occurs. Mm -hmm. We've also got the change in power from the Putnam clan to the porter clan in that five guys committee reverend paris is not receiving his paychecks because that committee uh, voted to reject the tax levies that would provide for those that compensation so and, little- and thomas by the way i think we've probably he sides with reverend paris he's a pro paris oh, yes he's very much pro paris yeah i like to stress that with my groups it makes it a little bit easier i always say there's pro paris people in salem village Uh and anti-paris people Uh and you will see the pro paris people pointing fingers at the anti-paris people and usually that's how it goes yeah so so thomas putnam after losing everything throws his lot in with the new minister and to top it all off his wife is pregnant Yes. That's got to add like, it's got to add a whole nother layer to it. They already have a handful of kids by this point. They've already lost a couple kids at this point. Is it? I'm not sure when those kids pass away. I know that they are young when it happens. So I think. I do see references to Ann Putnam Sr. experiencing a bit of loss just in her life in general. Yeah. And how that may have contributed to her desire or tendency to like partake in the afflictions maybe some of that was born out of her own traumatic experience maybe thomas putnam was an abusive husband or an abusive father but I, i'm not sure when those two children passed so I away think we, she's already i think I, I'll, I'll double check for next week but i think the one she's pregnant with now dies oh is uh, this like, i think that's the second one the first one had died a few years prior. Does this one die like during the trials? No, 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 no. After the trials? So from what I could see, this one named Sarah. Oh my gosh, stop. They're both named Sarah. Get out of here. No, they are not. Yeah, yeah. I looked at their names, but I didn't see any Sarahs. So Anne Jr., Thomas Elizabeth, Ebenezer, Deliverance, Timothy, Abigail, Seth, Experience, and Susanna... I saw all those. Are the ones that live. Oh my gosh, I did not see the ones that die. Two Sarahs die. Oh my god, are you <laughs> kidding me? No. <laughs> As infants. So I, I think Morbid. the child she's pregnant with now, well now, uh, likely conceived in January of 1692. And this is one of the reasons I said I, I sort of softened up my tone on on uh, Ann Putnam Sr., is oh you weren't so you weren't I thought you meant towards Ann Putnam Jr. No you no no Ann Putnam Jr. still shit, <laughs> but that probably has to do with her toxic father. Yes, but and she's thirteen. She's thir- right, um, but Ann Putnam Sr. If she conceived in mid January, February, March, 
she's in her first trimester suffering or experiencing all of those first trimester issues. Yeah. And then coming through the trials, uh, she's pregnant the whole time. That's, that's a lot. It was a hot summer too. Cold winter, hot summer. A lot of stress. Super toxic environment Ugh. and pregnancy hormones on top of that. I'm giving her some leeway. Yeah. Yeah. That household, dude. That household for that year. I'm sure the years leading up and the years to follow, but my gosh, to live, to be a fly on the wall in the Putnam household in 1692. Let's try that this week and we can talk about it next week. Sounds, <laughs> sounds good. Okay. Well, we, we've been rambling. We said we we're going to end this like 15 minutes ago. So uh, tune in next time to the Putnams part two. Those pesky, pesky Putnams. Thanks for listening. See you later.